And we're off. Hi, everybody. It is the 29th of September, 2022, and it is time for episode, I believe, 133 of the Luke Thomas live chat. I'm your host, Luke Thomas. How are you doing? Happy Thursday to everybody. On today's program, I'm going to open up with a little bit of thoughts on Bo Nickel. I know there's some questions about it. We'll get to that. We'll get to, I think there's some questions about Charles Oliveira. There are some questions about all kinds of stuff. Whatever you guys have on your mind, we will get to. Thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Hit subscribe if you'd be so kind. Um, Othello is here today. We worked out what went wrong last time. It's all good. So uh, if you are certainly under no requirement to leave a donation. That is absolutely a thing you cannot do, and it's totally okay. If you decide to do it, we'll get to those questions. We'll put them on the screen here uh, at the about after an hour mark. I'll go for an hour with the free questions that you guys put on that look like this, right? And we'll put it like this a little bit better. There you go. So those are the questions we'll do an hour on. And then once we're done with that, um, we'll get to the questions that you guys paid for. I appreciate you guys tuning in. And uh, I think that's it for today uh, in terms of setup. So without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? All right. <coughs> I had some almonds <coughs> before the show. <coughs> I could feel in my throat. All right. Um, I don't think there's any housekeeping notes. Appreciate everyone who left a question. Uh, I'm going to get to the questions in just a second. I promised on Twitter, you can follow me at L Thomas News. Um, I promised that I would talk about Bo Nickel to start things off. And I think I'd like to begin there a little bit for today's show, and then we'll get to whatever you guys have in mind. Well, I got to tell you, after his second fight, I thought to myself, I need to see a little bit more because the first guy he fought in Richmond for Jorge Masvidal, that Icon FC bout, he, uh, make sure everything's good, old Othello. Yeah, okay, sweet. After the uh, Icon FC bout, I was like, well, he just fought, you know, People are like, oh my God, he's fighting nobody. Right. It's his pro debut. He's not supposed to be fighting anybody tough. And you're like, well, that's unfair. It should be, you know, more competitive. Right. But that's not how the fight game works. Okay. Star prospects, star athletes start out with very, very beatable opposition. This is true in MMA, or at least it's supposed to be true. It largely is true. There are examples where that's not. Um, it's very true in boxing. They get very graduated escalation. Then he had a second bout, which was in Contender Series, and again, he just blew past the guy. Um, but, you know, this is a guy who I think started training or at least you know, made a transition from during the pandemic or something because he wanted to lose weight. This was not a guy who, you know, everyone who steps in that cage, as the sort of old adage goes, is deserving of respect. But this was not, to me, like somebody who was an experienced, talented fighter who had really proven himself on the regional scene. His last opponent, Beard, um, who was the CFFC middleweight champion, that was. A lot of folks are going to watch that fight and think he fought another nobody. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. That guy will probably make it to a bigger show, maybe even the UFC at some point. That was a really poor showing from him. That was not a, a low-quality sort of regional opponent. That was a very good regional opponent, actually. And Nickel just blew right past him. Like it was nothing. Bo Nickel, I don't know how far he'll go, but I got to tell you, for me personally, for me personally, 
he's the most exciting prospect since Brock Lesnar for me. Now, that might not end up being true in the sense that he may not have, you know, a title fight and whatever his fourth or fifth victory or whatever it ended up being against Couture or something like that. I'm not saying he'll have a similar career trajectory. I don't want to argue that. I don't, I, who could possibly know such a thing? Rather, what I'm telling you is for me, I haven't been this excited about a prospect since Brock Lesnar. I haven't been this particularly excited since him. Um, and I'll tell you what was it was about Brock was that when Brock fought Frank Mir, obviously he'd lost the first time, but he had all this ability. You were like, wow, he could really do something with that. And sure enough, he fought Heath Herring and he fought some other people and then eventually got to Couture and then he got the belt. And each time along the way, he had some clear deficiencies and we found out like he didn't like getting hit and that was a big deal in the Carwin fight, even though he came back. It was obviously a big deal in um, the Overeem bout. But he had this clear ability to just not only, you know, capture an audience, but he had so many tools. You were like, how far could he really go? And it was this every fight. You couldn't believe what you were going to get each subsequent time. I, I don't know how far Bo Nickel's going to go. I don't have a clear sense of that just yet. Although, <coughs> excuse me, he obviously looks like he is headed for someplace special. But just the level of intrigue I have for Bo Nickel, the level of, you know, the contemplations I'm having about like what he could do given what he has shown to me, this is the most excited I've been since Brock Lesnar entered the sport in terms of how far he can actually go. Here is what's really amazing. Two things that really stand out to me about what makes Bo Nickel special. One, I said this on Twitter. I'll repeat it here. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> this is not a guy who looks like Remember, that was only his third pro fight. So he went into the fight on Tuesday with only having two pro fights under his belt. Now, obviously, he's got a lifetime of wrestling, but just two pro MMA contests, and he was transitioning from collegiate wrestling. Now, he's been in transition for some time. Uh, in fact, I interviewed Bo Nickel right when he made the declaration back when I was working at SiriusXM. I had Bo Nickel on my show to talk about his declaration that he wanted to go into MMA. He got out of Penn State. And he still wanted to make a world team, I believe, and couldn't do it for whatever reason. And so now he's applying his talents to MMA. Um, I have never seen someone with that, with that minimal amount of MMA specific training look that advanced. Like I said this before, go back, forget the knockdown just before the knockdown, pay attention to his footwork, his distance management, his feints. And not every feint was as good as the other one, but his wrestling feints were very good right? And understanding exactly how to set it up to read reactions and then when to go. He had his opponent totally confused, quite obviously. And then again, ignoring the knockdown for just a second, pay attention to everything after the knockdown. Because after the knockdown, he looked like he'd been grappling for 10 years. This guy looked like he'd been fighting for 10 or 15 years, but yet had like no mileage on him, had all the athleticism of someone you know, very much in their prime. It was incredible to see someone whose development appears to be happening at something approximating warp speed. He did not look like a guy who entered the cage having just two pro MMA fights. Shocking, shocking level of sophistication in his development. I think the other thing that stands out to me about him, and he, he, he reminds you a little bit of Chimaev in the sense of, in this one particular way, they have very different games, at least from what we can tell. But, dude, once his first attack gets going, 
that's it. Now, he might have to chain it to something else, right? He tried the guillotine on Beard and it didn't work. So he waited for, Be he just watched Beard roll underneath him and then transitioned to the triangle and then used no hands on the triangle to seal it, just had one hand behind the head to bring it down to then close the space. But you get the idea. Either before the knockdown, based on what he was doing on the feet with footwork, distance management, defense, and feints, or after the knockdown with control, chaining together submissions, and then the ease and the dexterity with which it happened. Here's the other part, too. For someone to not have that much jujitsu training, I'm sure he's got a few years now, obviously, but that's not a whole lot to then be that nimble with leg dexterity and then leg wrestling is guys they just they don't come around like this very often they just don't i've been watching combat sports i've been watching jujitsu i've been i've been i've been doing this quite some time I, I you don't see this hardly at all you can see a guy leverage his strengths you can see a guy like oh you could tell he has a wrestling background you know you can you can sort of see that they've got pieces of the puzzle together you don't see this level of ease inside of like technical mastery typically until they've been doing this for quite some time Bo Nickel is for me for me the most exciting prospect since Brock Lesnar I just have never been this interested to see what somebody could do with the skills they have in the short amount of time since him that's it for me. I, I can't wait to see. Now, I know he's got a fight against Jamie Pickett coming up in December. I think Brett Okamoto of ESPN reported that today. Dude, he's going to run over Jamie Pickett. He's going to run over him. I will caution, though, that there are still many unknowns. I've seen people be like, yo, let's match make him inside the top five. Could he beat someone inside the top five? Who's to say? Maybe. Maybe he could. Could he beat someone inside the top 10 or top 15 right away? Probably. Probably he could. But one... I don't know that that's exactly what he needs for his development, right? And two, there will remain a ton of unanswered questions, like what's going to happen when someone jacks his jaw? By the way, how good is his chin? Like that's either you have one or you don't. There's not a whole lot you can do. There's some neck exercises you can do to work on it that can make a little bit of a difference for sure. It's important. But in general, like either you're born with a great one or you're not. We don't know how good his chin is. Again, you're like, oh, well. You know, what difference does that make? I bring this guy up all the time. Jonathan Goulet was a very good French-Canadian fighter, a very talented guy. Just didn't have a capacity to absorb damage like the Nogueras did, and it really impacted his career. So he was very technically adept, very good. Didn't matter. I mean, he was able to get to the UFC and have some good wins, but that really kind of, I think, put a limit on what he could do. So we don't really know the answer to that. We don't know what it's like if someone rocks him, what kind of resiliency he has over time. We don't know if that style, going back to the Hamzat style, now he doesn't come out quite like Hamzat where he is just truly shot out of a cannon. Like once he gets his attack sustained, you can tell he doesn't want to let the opponent ever get out of it. But someone's eventually going to get out of it. Someone's eventually going to withstand that. What does he do in terms of staying focused, reconstituting his offense, getting back on the horse. So there's all kinds of questions to answer about what's going to, what kind of guys give him tougher times than others. And you can sort of like, you know, guess maybe it's going to be the takedown guy or, or whatever. You can individually pick, you know, somebody from that top 15 who you could imagine giving him some difficulty, but, but fine. Those are unanswered questions and we don't really know what that's going to look like. What's it going to look like in the second round or third round? I mean, there's just a lot of really important questions we don't have answers to in the MMA sphere he is very much not battle tested 
He is not. In wrestling, collegiate wrestling, you know, I watched his senior year. I mean, they couldn't do anything to him. This is not that. This is a very different kind of game. This is the pain game. It's not the exact same thing. So you can get guys who won't be as dynamic an athlete and don't have his kind of a background, and they could potentially still give him trouble because they could be good enough with their athleticism, and they could just have a certain aptitude for fist fighting that even a great athlete might not have. So I do want to caution folks. I actually understand and very much agree with the UFC's booking. He needs time to really maximize what he's going to be. But I saw some folks, I really did see this. I was commenting on the discussion between Megan Anderson and somebody else on Twitter, and they were saying that, like, you know, Raul Rosas Jr. has, you know, uh, way more MMA experience, which that's true. He does uh, in terms of just the totality of fight time. That, that, he, that is very clearly true, but that he was overall a better fighter by virtue of that reality. Get the fuck out of here. I mean, just please be fucking serious. That is just such an insanely stupid thing to say. We need to be very aware that the information we have about Bo Nickel in MMA is limited. It is limited. However, the information that we do have is beyond exciting. You are dealing with somebody here who is potentially capable of, I don't say this very often after guys fought three times, I'll say it here, he is very much capable of winning a world title inside the UFC very capable if not right away certainly with some time if he can avoid big damage if he can avoid um improper matchmaking if he can really stay with his development in four years time he should be a champion right that sounds he's busy 26 so he'd be 30 by that point might get it even sooner than that that is the level of potential we're talking about um i don't see that with anyone else on the contender series at any point uh, that doesn't mean that they won't become champions and that Bo Nickel will. I mean, Bo Nickel might flame out. Who's to say? Like Again, it's a very early kind of stage. But in terms of what you see at the present moment, if I was to pick someone who's going to be a UFC champion, I'd put all my fucking money on him in terms of all, all the contender series guys. Far and away. One of the most special guys I've ever seen. Truly. All right. With that in mind, let's get to your questions here. We start... With the first one, what do you think of Anthony or Anthony Stars? I don't know if that's his actual name. Performance as Homelander. He seems quite terrifying as an amazing actor. I had never seen this dude prior to The Boys. So this is, maybe he's been in something and I just don't remember him. He is phenomenal. You know what he reminds me of? A lot of times when someone plays, um, for example, here's a good example of one. Um, the Tarantino movie where they burn all the Nazis in the movie theater. Um, um Oh, Jesus, what the hell is that movie called? It's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, here, uh, let's see. It is called uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yes, of course. What was I thinking? The Christoph Waltz, who plays the Nazi officer, he has a German accent, obviously, because he is actually German. He, but he comes in speaking French and English and all this stuff. Have you ever noticed how like pushy they are? And then the Nazi officer in the basement scene... I won't spoil it for folks who haven't seen it, but the Nazi officer, they're playing the card game and drinking the beer, how pushy and like, and commanding, but like in a bad way they are. Um, uh, Star's performance of Homelander reminds me of that. It reminds me of those like really aggressively pushy, in your face, um, bullying 
Nazi officers from various um, cinematic works. And I feel like I couldn't imagine, I'm sure that there could be someone else who could play the character. The greatest compliment I can pay him is that at this point, I couldn't imagine who else could have done the job that he did with Homelander. You know, you wonder about like Deep. Someone else could probably play Deep or certainly, um, what was the guy's name? Black Noir, the guy who never talked to, saw cartoon characters, you know, or even Starlight or even a bunch of those guys. But Butcher, who else could have played Butcher except that guy? I don't know. So that's really like they just have they've made you believe that the only instantiation you could possibly enjoy is the version that they provide. He's amazing. Really, really quite amazing. All right, let's go back to your questions here. Uh, hey, Luke, previously you've cautioned against fast tracking Bo Nickel too quickly. Is that to avoid a situation like Aaron Pico? Now that he's being offered a UFC contract, what kind of opponent would you like to see him uh, see him placed against? Right, so they've got Jamie Pickett. <clears throat> I don't know if that was the one I would have gone with, but an unranked guy who's got some experience inside the UFC, yeah, I probably would have gone with something like what they did. He wanted to fight before December. Maybe that's just what lined up and all they had available. And so that's exactly how it ends, and that's exactly how it goes, and that'll be what it'll be. Um, don't mind it at all. We'll have to see how things go. Again, I think that Pickett's probably going to get run over, but stranger things have happened. The Pico case is one where you just need to be very very careful. I want to point out something here. Let's pull up Pico's resume. I want to point out something here if I can here. Pull this up if we can here just a little I'll make it bigger. Okay, now let's go to it if we can here. Take a look at this. So, I know there's ads all over the fucking screen, but um so they start him off against Zach Freeman and it went quite poorly. Right, 24 seconds into the first round. He gets a bunch of wins, including the, the Ego win, but he was, Leandro Ego, but he was just kind of fighting like a donk still. He's just getting by. Then he loses to Corrales in a fight he shouldn't have lost. Just got hit clean, slugging it out. Adam Boric finished him off with knees. So then he goes to basically four and fucking three. He was nearly a 500 fighter at one point, okay? Because they mismanaged so much about him. So then he had to really hit the reset button, and he did, beating Carey, Hatley, DeJesus, Lee, uh, Gonzalez, and then Edwards. But, dude, none of these guys are a name guy. Now, Jeremy Kennedy is a name guy. Jeremy Kennedy, as I mentioned on MK, he trains at Extreme Couture. He's got, he fought in UFC. He fought in PFL. He's beaten good fighters. This is quite literally, since the Boric fight, this is his toughest test to date, and it might you know, he should pass it. The point I want to make here is if you fuck up someone's development, it is very, very difficult to fix. And we we are going to find out the Kennedy fight won't tell us the full complete answer, but I'll just say if he can't beat Kennedy, it means that his, his development was irreparably fucked up. That's what that would tell me. He should beat Kennedy. Kennedy is talented in a difficult fight. I take that seriously. He should too. He is capable of winning it. Those other ones I, I didn't really take seriously. But I just want to point out, and he fought Zach Freeman back in 2017. Like we're just now getting back to the point where we thought we were back then. If you don't get it right, you will ruin a guy. You will ruin a guy. You ruin their confidence. You ruin their willingness to assume risk. You, uh, you ruin their psychological kind of... Um, competitive composition 
so to speak, you can you can absolutely ruin it. And you once it's fucked, you can't undo it. Like there's just no much. There's not much you can do now. After the Boric fight, I think that Brandon Gibson and the guys at Jackson Wink have done as good as they possibly could, and I think they have waited as long as they needed to to get him back to that spot. Bo Nickel, obviously, in his first three fights, didn't suffer a loss in this way or whatever, but there is still enough unknown about him that some caution is still warranted. You've got to be... He may take a punch and then decide, oh, that's not what I thought... This is not what I thought it was going to be, even... Um, even in a, in a way where it's he's not like fully cognizant of that reality, like uh, Josh Thompson spoke about after the Tony Ferguson fight, he, did, he couldn't quite tell what was wrong with him, right? But um, the damage was done, and he hadn't fully become aware of it and reconciled with it, and that kind of helped exit him from the sport. He fought after that, but that was a turning point in his career. So I'm just trying to point out development is crucial. I've seen folks be like, oh, he should fight guys inside the top 10. Just because he could beat someone there does not mean that's a good idea. You want to make this sure this guy can grow to where he can reach whatever his potential ceiling is. You don't want to put him in there with somebody he's automatically competitive with because that actually undercuts the long-term process. So maybe Jamie Pickett has a beaten coming. I, I don't know. We'll have to see. But I, I think it's appropriate matchmaking, all things being what they are. Oh, great question. I've not read this yet. I just bought it. Uh, but I'll go to this one. Completely off topic, but I saw your extra credit and noticed a book facing outward on your shelf, one I've been fascinated with over the past couple of years. The Body Keeps the Score. I believe it has some important lessons along with the work of Gabor Mate uh, that I think would be positively impact our society with more popularity and awareness around this subject. So I only bought it because I just recently heard a podcast and then I was in a bookstore with my daughter and I saw it was on sale. The guy who wrote it is Dutch, although he speaks perfect English if you want to check him out for uh, any kind of interview that you want to listen to. His name is Bessel van der Kolk. The Body Keeps the Score. This is the book that he's talking about. Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Um, here's the basic summation of the book. I've not read it yet. I only heard the interview. Uh, and I put it up there because I had no other place to put it. So I want to be clear. Oh, these are the ones. Everyone's like, have you read these books? Yes. This one I have not. I'm being quite quite transparent about it. So this is the this is the summation. Trauma is a fact of life. Veterans and their families, for example, deal with the painful aftermath of combat. One in five Americans has been molested. One in four grew up with alcoholics. One in three couples have engaged in physical violence. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, one of the world's foremost experts on trauma, has spent over three decades working with survivors. In this book, he uses recent scientific advances to show how trauma literally reshapes both body and brain compromising sufferers' capacities for pleasure, engagement, self-control, and trust. Beyond that, the body actually um, can have a certain awareness uh, beyond just the mind's capacity to reason through it. By the way, that's also part of what he discovered through research. He explores innovative treatments from neurofeedback to meditation to sports, blah, 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 that offer new paths to recovery by activating the brain's natural neuroplasticity. Based on Dr. Vander Kolk's own research and that of other leading specialists, this book exposes the tremendous power of our relationship both to hurt and heal and offers new hope for reclaiming lives. The reviews are incredible. He did an appearance on the Ezra Klein show. That's where I heard it. And uh, it was revelatory. So I've not dug through the actual... The only thing I know about this book is what was discussed 
to promote the book through that book tour he did through that podcast appearance. That's all I can tell you about it. Um, I just saw it on sale and I was like, how coincidental. Let me pick it up. But um, I strongly encourage everyone to hear that. His recitation of how the body actually processes trauma that has happened to it. Your, your dad beat you up when you were a kid or something really traumatic happened in your life, whatever that may be. Um, it can leave physical scars, certainly, but it actually has a profound impact on how your mind operates. And then your capacity, you, you are, your brain becomes hobbled. Um, your body becomes hobbled in ways that, you know, if someone chopped your arm off, you would clearly know how that would affect your ability to use your body. Um, obviously, your brain is not getting chopped to pieces, but it has a trauma can have a similar level of effect. And if you don't really work through and understand the depths of it and how difficult it can be to work through it, um, people are like, oh, I left the trauma in my past. Did you? Did you? That's not so easy to do. Um, and it's much more common than we're fully aware of the the depth of trauma and what it does to people. Uh, all right, let's go back. Would it be of any benefit to the UFC's competitors to work together to compete with the UFC? For example, creating super fights between promotional champions, exchanging fighters, etc. I'm sure there's better examples, but it feels like UFC is so far ahead of its competitors, hence the Monopoly lawsuit, that Bellator 1 PFL will never be able to catch up. Um, I don't know if it's not letting me see more by virtue of the fact that it's incognito, but either way... Um, well, this is really the, the 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 difficult challenge to this whole thing. You would ask, "Hey, what could these competitors, such as they are, Bellator One, PFL, right? What could they do if they worked together to actually take market share away from UFC? What could they do?" And the answer is probably, you know, something interesting, right? You could imagine if let's imagine a world where Chatri Sityatong and Don Davis, whoever is running PFL, and uh, Scott Coker all decided, we're going to make a super organization. We're just going to fold Bellator. We're going to fold PFL. We're going to fold one. We're just going to call it, you know, Monopoly Fighting, whatever. Monopoly FC. Could they put together, if they combined their rosters, a very dynamic product? They sure could. They sure could. They would have something kind of interesting there. UFC would still have a superior product, but you can imagine that would be something, that would be the, the, the sort of Voltron of orbiting MMA organizations outside of UFC. They could do something pretty pretty fantastic. The problem is they don't really want to do that. There's no real mechanism to combine them. So they would have to work together for mutual gain, and that becomes much more difficult. Certainly Scott Coker has done some stuff with Ryzen, but they exist in such distinct worlds where the Ryzen is, you know, predominantly just a very Japanese product, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be anything else, but that sort of is what it is. And they have a talent sharing program where, like, you know, Kyoji Horiguchi goes to Bellator, Darren Caldwell goes over there, and vice versa. And that's fine, but it doesn't really result in anything significantly improved for either uh, promoter. It creates, on occasion, a better event on one side or a better event. Right, Koji, Koji Horiguchi being able to participate in the Bantamweight Grand Prix, it didn't work out, but his inclusion, you would agree isn't evidence of something being really good there. Um, fine. But it's very hard for one and Bellator to find a place to do that. They haven't been able to make the Kayla Harrison versus Cyborg fight for whatever reason. It's hard to find something that's mutually beneficial in that way. Even if they made it, how would you share revenue? What network would it air on? It just becomes boxing at that point, and even more so, even more secluded. And one has such a distinct product. Yes, there would be some overlap with Bellator. Yes, there would be some overlap with, with P 
PFL, but like what is each one going to do to get something out of it? And you could say like, well, let's create an independent title, the Super Cup champion, right? And the best from Bellator and the best from PFL and the best from one all compete. But if let's say two, three years in a row, everyone's winning from one, is Bellator going to be as interested as investing in this? It has to have independent prestige other than what the three themselves bring to it. But it can't unless the three bring themselves to it. So it's this sort of catch-22 that you're kind of stuck in. So you do understand that if there was a pooling or sharing of the resources in a more dynamic way, that would create a more competitive product relative to what the UFC has. All facts. But the mechanism by which you create it is really where the devil uh, is in the details. And no one has really come up with something that can convince these promoters to have a truly meaningful talent share or tournament or whatever, whatever the mechanism might be, where they feel like they would get a lot out of it on either way. And because in the end, it's like, oh, well, we could compete with UFC, right? But what they really want to do is just make their brand shine. So how do you create something where everyone's brand shines? That's much more difficult to arrange in the real world in whatever mechanism you want to pick than you might imagine. Getting them to buy in, getting it to carry prestige, investing in it year over year, because that's really what you would have to do. You couldn't do a one-off. You couldn't do two-off or three-off. It had to be this sustained kind of effort. That's very, very difficult to do. And so it ends up being that they just exist separately and the UFC gets to benefit as a consequence. Also, they have arguable monopsony control of the market so that's the other part too it wasn't always this way it used to be that the ufc was the biggest player um even then not always but a long part let's say post ultimate fighter as a just sort of a clear demarcation line it used to be that they were the clearly the biggest but you couldn't necessarily argue they were a monopoly it was much much more unclear strike force was a pretty good second tier promotion in fact their heavyweight grand prix is sort of evidence like look who was in it you know it was a pretty great tournament um and yes you could say like what about their and i know i think coker announced a, a lightweight grand prix or whatever for 2023 um but i would argue bellator is not akin to what strike force was in the market you could actually look at strike force's roster and bellator's roster and you might even be able to argue that bellator's roster is better in the totality of it all but in terms of what it represented and the market share that it occupied, I don't think it's the same at all. Uh, let's see. You mentioned during MK that there are some aspects of Sandhagen's game you think need to be cleaned up or evolved. I assume how easily he gave his back to Yadong was one of these issues. That's one of them. What specifically would you like added or cleaned up? Again, I went through this on MK a little bit. A lot of it he did clean up. Um, not going for leg entanglements rather than just getting to your feet, right? So continuing to wrestle to your feet was a big one. That was a really big one. Um, again, just avoiding the submissions altogether, not playing from guard. Uh, better about defense, keeping his hands up through combination, through stance switch, through any number of things he was trying as a mechanism to uh, you know just not take as much damage. So there was a lot of things he did clean up. The thing about giving his back to Song Yadong that I think I would have to talk to him more about, and I'm told that I don't, I don't know if this interview is going to happen. We were going to fly him up to Jersey for MK. I don't. I think it will happen. I don't know if it's going to happen as soon as we thought it was. So we'll have to see how that goes. We're going to have him on RSD. Um, he may that may have been more calculated, which is to say. Should you give up your back as a mechanism of standing and fighting the hands? Not if you can avoid it. Not if you can avoid it. But 
if you have an opponent that you're reasonably sure isn't going to provide a significant threat from the back, could that be something where in that particular fight, in under those conditions, could you argue it's a good idea, um, or at least a workable idea, rather, to give up your back as needed in particular circumstances? Yes, you could. You could. And in fact, I think that that call, if, if in fact that was the call and not just him resorting to a bad habit, I actually think it paid off pretty big. So I, I would actually think so. So there we go. Uh, let's go to this one. It's a weird one. Luke, how do your views on religion differ from your parents? And how did you go about telling them that I'm current? I'm currently struggling with telling my mother who's very Catholic that I no longer believe in Catholicism, but I know it will immensely hurt her. Any advice? Um, I don't know if I have any advice. I was raised, um, you know, Protestant, like a lot of Americans were. And I quickly realized you know, I'm not going to shit on anyone's religion here if I can avoid it. It's not for me. It's not for me. Um, I don't... I I think the scholarship around it would tell you that... Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll skip that part. But it's not for me. The good news is my dad is, I think, religious in only a, hey, I grew up going to church since. He doesn't go to church. No one in my family goes to church. Uh, my mother was pretty religious, but wasn't exactly keeping tabs on me, nor enforced church attendance at any point past fifth or sixth grade or something like that. She went on her own, but didn't make me. So I didn't really have a strong uh, push to attend church. Uh, I didn't feel a strong need. I was not especially allured by its offerings. and. I was not I was not in any way curious about pursuing that through adulthood whatsoever. So I don't know if I have great advice for you. I don't know your situation. Um I I don't know. Uh, you would you you would need to talk to someone else who's probably navigated these spaces better than me and has experience. I I simply do not. I just stopped going and my family didn't seem to care. So there you go. All right. Uh, love the recent Chuck RSD. Thank you. Uh, would you consider doing more RSD episodes with other MMA media members? Sure. Someone's asking about Ariel. We did the sit down with Ariel for the Jake Paul Woodley one or two. I forget which one. I think it was outside of the pool. So it was Tampa. So that must have been the rematch. Yes. Sean Elshadi. Yes. And then Wagenheim. Yes. Wagenheim doesn't really go on the road that much. I haven't seen him on the road in years. But to the extent that he did, I'd be happy to have him on the show. Sure. Yes. Um, you know, MMA media has changed in pretty dramatic ways. They don't do the same thing that they used to. My biggest complaint is not so much that like, oh, they don't really hold Dana to account. They're not paid to hold Dana to account. The companies that hire them don't really care if that happens. I mean, there's some, I'm overstating it a little bit, but in general, they're not really designed to do that. What they're designed to do is show up and give you event coverage or fight coverage. What they used to do a lot more of was go digging for stories. Right, the, the fighters before the advent of social media, before the advent of YouTube, before all that stuff, yes, they could do, they could write their, uh, you guys may not, you certainly may not remember this, Mayhem Miller used to have a column he wrote, I think in like Fighters Only Mag or a different magazine that, would, that used to exist or whatever, but your main conduit to getting attention beyond whatever 
was to talk to the media. That's why going to someone's hometown and their gym was like a big deal. And it was hard to get those assignments and stuff like that. Like the, they had a much more reliant need on the media. They're not as reliant for those stories. They bring you into their lives and it's a curated version of it, but there's so much of it that, you know, how much of interest is there in really getting the real story and how much of a real story is even there anymore. That kind of stuff stopped. And by the way, it's not just like good stuff. It can be bad stuff, like digging into big stories. Like when was the last time someone wrote a story about, I think Josh Gross maybe in The Athletic about, um, you know, questionable managerial practices because what they really need is to do fight week previews and managers who are not all of them. There are some great ones. I talked to many great ones, but there's a lot of ones that are not so great that that are very heavy handed and controlling and, um, you know, make sure that you got to work through them and you have to have a good relationship through them before you can even talk to any other guys like they're the fucking gatekeeper and stuff. And by the way, that's a widespread practice. I know some folks might be thinking of a name here or a name there. Let me assure you, it's not one name here and one name there. It's a wide swath of people who are involved in that. Um, And so what these guys, you know, Ariel obviously has guys still on and he gets some information from them and that's pretty good. But like the digging that used to happen doesn't exist anymore. These guys have all for the most part done some digging. So they got stories to tell. You know, they got things that they've seen. Chuck has done some digging, like the Strange Brew story. Like, that took a lot of digging. People don't do shit like that anymore. They just don't do stuff like that. And I think that's a big part that's missing. What what media has essentially become is um, really, rather than serving the sport and covering all the myriad issues between commission and officiating issues and potential malfeasance uh, outside of the cage, like, hey, fighter X beat up his girlfriend or whatever, um, and then any other thing in between, it's really just become uh, an event. Uh, they just, all they do is week to week cover events. That's really, it, it just, the cycle starts over. And, and anything that feeds that or is essentially orbiting that is all that they really do anymore. Um, with some examples to the contrary here or there, but it has dramatically, dramatically shifted. It did not, 10 years ago, it was not like this. 15 years ago, it was definitely not like this. It was completely different. Um, so uh, I don't know if that's a change for the better, but it's a change, and here we are. All right, here we go. Uh, hey, Luke, do you think Bo Nickel's size could end up being an issue for him at middleweight? He's gone on record saying he stopped cutting much weight since he instead would rather focus on honing his skills. We don't know. I tend to think probably not. Those guys who are wrestlers tend to be stronger outside of their presumed limits. Like, we, oh, this guy is a small 185-er. Then they put hands on you, and you're like, oh, fuck, okay. Well, he might be a small 185-er, but he's perfectly suited. Also, Robert Whitaker is not huge for the weight class, and he's, you know, outside of the champ, the best in class and by a, by a decent margin. So skills win fights, uh, and he seems to have a lot of those. I'm sure he'll get better at certain things. It is worth paying attention to. I would not right away flag that as something I'm most curious about. All right. Let's let's talk about this. I'm so glad you asked about this, Danger Mouse. Luke, In as regards, uh, it would be in regards, but I don't know, maybe you could do as as well. Uh, as regards to the Connor USADA situation, surely the answer is that he has a medical exemption. I believe steroids are often used in treating bad breaks. They can be used in a lot of different ways. They would give me steroids for all kinds of stuff for very not for very long very minimal amounts of things but yeah they, i mean it's not just bad breaks anderson silva claimed to have used them in his recovery from a very similar injury right 
Perhaps Connor has negotiated a medical exemption for treatment. Here's the thing. I'm not, I want to be very clear about this. This is not, 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 not that your question suggests that. Merely what I am bringing up. I am not in any way upset or taking issue with anything Connor has done. If in fact Connor, especially in the case of like, did he use potentially performance enhancing drugs, but inside of some kind of medical context for rehabilitation for a very severe and potentially career ending injury, like only a madman would have a problem with this. I don't have any issue with that at all. My issue is strictly with USADA. And I realize that they can't speak about any one particular fighter. I'm not asking about one particular fighter. Let's go back very quickly, if we can, to, uh, let me find it, the Aaron Bronstetter tweets that have been at top of mind for me that just drives me up the fucking wall with this shit. Let me pull this up. Okay. Let's go back here. Let me show this to you, and I'll make this more readable. Blow this up a little bit. Okay, now it's more readable. All right? After cross-referencing the entire active UFC roster with USADA's athlete test history database, I found that Conor McGregor was the lone active fighter, aside uh, from some athletes who have signed after August 1st, right? Like This, this tweet is from uh, six days ago, about a week, to not be tested by USADA. Okay, fair enough. McGregor's team in UFC declined comment. Fine. USADA provided the following statement. Let's read the following statement. Quote, once UFC athletes are enrolled in the testing program, they are subject to testing even when not competing, for example, like Chris Weidman, unless they notify the UFC of their retirement, to their contract is terminated, or they otherwise removed from the program. Now, all this other shit you can keep reading if you want. Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up to say the part where they say they are otherwise removed from the program. This is a very simple question. It's a very simple question, and it is not in any way specific to Conor McGregor. Is there a non-publicized potential for carve-outs for certain fighters, either under medical condition or any other unnamed condition we are not aware of? What does that mean? They are otherwise removed from the program. Why the fuck would you be otherwise removed from the program except for you're not in the UFC anymore and you retired? Is This is a very easy question. You do not have to reveal anyone's specific medical information. Does it exist that there is a carve-out for a medical exemption or any other kind of exemption that a fighter can undertake that has nothing to do with retirement that has nothing to do with being axed from the UFC? And if so, what are the conditions under which we get put into those situations? They need to be transparent about this. Maybe the answer here is they haven't tested them because they just haven't tested them. I don't know. You guys know I don't give a shit about any of this stupid kabuki theater that everyone's been led to believe. And I'm not going to go on another rant, but you know, I don't even give a fuck if he's been using. I don't care at all. It doesn't mean shit to me. Nothing. Don't care. But if you're going to say, I believe in anti-doping, if you're going to say in this particular case that you are the anti-doping authority, you need to be transparent about what carve-out exists. You're telling us that there are at least two known carve-outs, retirement, termination. Be clear, be very clear 
what other carve-out exists. You must tell the public. You don't have to say who's gotten them. You don't have to say uh, this person got them and they had this treatment. I'm not entitled to anyone's medical history. But if you're going to be in charge of anti-doping and you're going to proudly report all the people you test by quarter, right, and and, and, uh, we're going to make this publicly accessible, it needs to be publicly known whether or not independent of contract termination and retirement other carve-out exists where you could be in the UFC. By the way, Connor currently still ranked inside the top 15 at 155 pounds. He is still very much active in that sense. Whether or not exemptions exist beyond the scope of what you have identified. Here's a really basic test for everyone. Why is it we can't get a straight answer to a very straightforward question? The question is not, why hasn't McGregor been tested? I don't give a shit about that one, such as it is. What I care about is the broader question, the one I've just been asking now now three times. I'll do it one more time, and I promise I won't repeat it. Beyond retirement, beyond contract termination, are there other carve-outs that exist that allow someone to be active and not be tested? Is there a classification? Is there a program? Is there some other kind of legal carve-out By what mechanism can that happen? If you can't give a straight answer to that question, you're already giving the answer away, aren't you? You're already giving the answer away. That's a very easy question to answer. Yes or no, is there a carve-out? Yes or no? Yes or fucking no? This is basic. This is fucking basic. You don't have to identify any fighters, any medical treatment, anything. But you must be transparent about that. If you want to claim the mantle of being the adults in the room, if you want to claim the mantle of we're the ones really trying to clean up sport, you do not get to keep that secret. You do not get to keep that secret. Or you can keep it secret, and then you can go and punt your fucking trust into the atmosphere because at that point, no one longer gives a shit. And you guys know me. I don't trust these jabronis for shit. But most of you might. Some of you might. Some of you might be curious. Surely you can agree with me. I'm not asking a super sophisticated or personal question. I'm not asking everyone to violate HIPAA laws or anything like that. I am asking a very, very easy to answer question about which we cannot get a straight one. To me, I cannot declare to you what the truth of the matter is because we are left in the dark. But it seems to me that if you can't answer a very basic question this way about something where you're a, you're a, a public program in many ways. It's not public in the sort of government sense, but they're trying to be as forthcoming to the public about giving information that they can. This seems to me like something the public should know, right? Does your anti-doping program allow people to be using like motherfuckers and not be tested for reasons unrelated to retirement and contract termination, right? Does it, is that possible, right? Yes or no. They can't give you a straight answer. They can't give you a straight answer. And I know, by the way, Bronsitter has tried to follow up. He still can't get a straight answer. Cannot get one. What does that tell you? All right. Would you, who would you take in a fight between 29 and oh, Habib or present day Hamzat? Jesus. Well, Hamzat's bigger. I mean, he's a lot bigger. Also, oh, you mean like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Hamzat's bigger. So I don't know how that would go. I might even lean Hamzat-ish, but like that's not a one-to-one thing. 
Also, thoughts on a women's heavyweight division in UFC combat sports more generally? Um, not a fa- I don't. I don't. No. No commission's going to go for it. I, I don't mind it personally, like in theory, but no commission's going to go for it. Also, Pena should definitely go to PFL and fight Kayla, right? For big money, maybe. I don't know if she will. Luke, well, who, uh, what would you rate your Spanish proficiency, and how often are you practicing? Well, I practice every day. Uh, I would say my that. So the I don't know what the precise levels of language um expertise would go to i'm told that i'm proficient so not good definitely not expert nor fluent i'm something like two grades below that i'm like a c student in spanish here's what i can do i can very easily you know get around town i can easily ask directions i can very easily order off a menu i can you know these kinds of things i can get a cab i can you know i can talk to hotel concierge no problem like these things are very very easy for me i can mostly make um conversation the biggest challenges are the various tenses in Spanish. There's just a lot of tenses. Uh, my accent's okay. It's not great. It's 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 okay. It's fine. Um, usually, the issue with uh, I found that with folks, if there's an issue understanding me, it's not really uh, a function of my accent. It's more a function of like I might use the wrong word. Like I one time, I didn't know how to say the word room. But I meant the word like, is there room inside the car? But I used the word cuarto, which means like the room we're in. And the guy didn't understand the fucking word I was saying. He was like, what? Uh, he didn't, because I was trying to see if like we needed to get a second cab. Could we all fit in the cab? Because all the cars are really small. And it was like me, my wife, and a bunch of other people. And we're trying to figure out how many could fit. And I used the wrong word. And he was like super confused. And my wife had to intervene. So shit like that happens pretty regularly where I don't, I kind of like try and fit you know, pieces of the puzzle together and it doesn't quite, quite work. Um, but you know, like basic conversations, again, anything like going to the store or interacting with other people in a kind of transactional way, very, very easy for me to do. No problem there. The issue becomes tenses. It becomes a lack of vocabulary to like, like fully articulate myself, um, and stuff like that. So that's really where I'm at. Um, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, okay, let's go back. You said Hamzat would have to get through Whitaker and a bunch of other middleweight contenders just to get to Izzy. I would contend that if he becomes welterweight champion, he wouldn't have to do any of that and could just go champion versus champion. Yes, that is certainly quite possible. It is very possible that what could easily happen is that he could, you know, whoever's going to win between Leon and um, Usman and their trilogy will fight Hamzat, Hamzat could win, or, you know, Hamzat could fight Colby. Let's just imagine a scenario where Hamzat becomes champion, right? Let's imagine that. If that, in fact, happens, could he, especially if the fight is dominant, like where he claims the title in a very thorough and dominating way, could the UFC just be like, hey, fuck it, let's just, let's just give him a title shot at 185? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. I, I am just imagining a scenario where um, he would have to more thoroughly prove himself up the ranks of 185 but is your hypothetical here something that we've seen before and could be repeated again yes of course it is of course it is um let's see luke did you hear let me put this up again one more time did you hear javier mendez's interview with submission radio boys i saw so i saw the clips on social i've not heard it yet he believes Islam is the most well-rounded lightweight fighter of all time and said he's the only person who ever won rounds against Habib in sparring. Now, I'm picking Islam 
to beat Charles. But what do you think is the most likely scenario in that fight? Can't wait for it. Boy, this is a good question. Uh, and what he said was he was like most well-rounded guy. You know, he, he kind of compared him in like in like lineage to like Frank Shamrock. And I know a lot of folks have not really don't know much about his career, but that's saying a lot. Trust me. Um, although Shamrock is different to me because he was kind of like a pioneer of like what it meant for a new fighter to do interesting things. Uh, Islam to me doesn't exactly feel that way, but, um, I haven't fully seen evidence of it yet. Like obviously Javier knows what Islam Makachev uh, is capable of doing in ways that none of us do. I do, I do think that's fair, right? He's seen significantly more of him in a lot of different, I'm sure, very tough training scenarios. In terms of what he's shown in the fights, certainly you would grant he is well-rounded with a certain specialization. Is he the most well-rounded lightweight fighter of all time? Um, I am a little hesitant to agree with that based off of what we have seen. Uh, that seems a little presumptuous. Uh, again, we'll see against Charles. Maybe he's going to go in there and show us and dazzle us in a way that we didn't even expect. Even, And I, I'm sure most of you have a high opinion of him one way or the other, but we shall see. It'll be interesting to see if we can do that. Um, let's see. Let's get a good one here. Oh, glad you asked. Very good. Uh, what do you think of the UFC closing off this Saturday's fights with no fans or media? UFC chose not to comment, and Dana just joked when asked about it. But Mackenzie Dern said it's because of Mark Zuckerberg, and Meta rented it out for maybe a party or a private event for himself. So in the case of Mark Zuckerberg and the Apex, I'm of two different minds because it seems like there's two different possibilities. Of course, there could be more. It seems like there's two basic possibilities. One, they rented it out for some kind of uh, metaverse-related work. What that could be, God only knows. I don't know what they would need that for or in what capacity or why they in that way you wouldn't want the media there. I don't I don't exactly understand it. But my thought is, look, the Apex is a private facility. Um, the UFC is allowed to do this if they want. They don't have to have media there. They don't have to have fans there. And if they wanted to work with one of the, you know, if the one of the biggest tech companies in the world for some kind of uh, project related to, you know, the, the UFC product in the future. I don't really think it's worth getting upset about. I really don't. I mean, it's annoying, and I don't understand why the at least the media couldn't be there. I don't say that like, oh, media can't go. I just mean like, okay, you would need fewer people because you might need to do more things. But like, what is the? I guess I guess they just can't have anyone on the floor. I I, I don't know. I don't know. But you can imagine there could be a scenario where they just had to clear it out and they want it for that purpose. If that's really the case, I really don't think it's worth getting up in arms about. If it's the case, however. And again, I want to be very clear about this. If, if, if it is the case that he just rented it out because he just wants a private, basically, he wanted a private UFC event for himself, I can scarcely think of something more tech oligarch than that. I want a nationally broadcast of sports event, right, that was going to air through an a ESPN distribution channel for myself. <laughs> Like, I'm not rubbing elbows with any of you peasants. You are not going to be around me at all. Yeah, if that's the case, then what I would say is I warned you. Um, 
So we'll have to see. We'll have to reserve judgment until we can get a clearer sense of exactly what is happening here. I think the fact that Dana was so coy about saying what the reason is does not inspire confidence for me that it's actually fully metaverse related. Of course, it could be a hybrid. It could be done under the pretext that this was done for the metaverse or in some kind of way. And what it actually is, is just what he wanted was a private party, in which case it's hard to parse what happened here. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. Here's what I want to see if what happens on Saturday. On Saturday, do we get a scenario where we are going to be constantly exposed to pro Mark Zuckerberg messaging, right? Because where's he going to be? Is he just not going to be there? If he's there, they're going to probably show him. They might interview him. They might get a soundbite from him. Who, who knows what they might do? Or maybe they do nothing. I don't know. Listen, if it's a metaverse event and they barely talk about him, you know, quick mention here or there or whatever, I don't really care. But if he just buys this shit out because he doesn't want to rub elbows with peasants and then they end up doing a fucking, you know, they just end up blowing him on the broadcast the entire time. Yo, <laughs> I mean, this is how reputations get laundered. This is, this is you know, it, again, if it's the latter, if it is the latter, nothing would be a greater demonstration, not merely of like the demands of the Versailles level of sleaze you get from a tech oligarch in a situation like this. But more to the point, just how much um, this industry just accepts people of power without any consideration for what, what their actual record is. You know, everyone just, oh, you're famous. Come on in. You know, that's it. Like, that's it. Oh, you're, you're rich and powerful. Come on in. Rather than being like, okay, he's rich and powerful. That's cool. But like, is there anything else to the story that we should be aware of here about this person? You know? There's just, there's zero discernment. And in fact, listen, if you're the UFC and it's the situation where it's, they're renting it out for metaverse purposes or whatever, some, some, something related to the, the business of meta, you would understand the UFC's positioning there, right? You would want the UFC to at least open the door, metaphorically speaking, to important figures in tech. Um, if you, if you were running the UFC and now it's a, you know, WME is public you have a fiduciary responsibility to explore these various possibilities of, of interaction, right? You do. Doesn't mean you have to go through with them, but you have a fiduciary responsibility to your, to your shareholders to do that correctly. Um, so I, I understand that uh, largely. And again, if that's the case, it's just not worth getting all up in arms about. Um, the two things I would leave you with, though, if I may, one, I do wonder what he paid, right? No media. You know, like uh, no fans, no media, all to myself or for whatever purpose. Again, we're unclear about that. Like, how much did he pay? Because if you're the if you're Apex, you're not really making a money from the gate, and they're going to do less shows in the Apex next year, so they can go on the road and get money from the gate. I wonder. I again, I, I'm merely wondering if the UFC looked at this and was like, "Hey, this is a great way to treat this like a gate." You know, how much did he pay for that? Five hundred thousand? A million? Two million? Five million? Like, what did he pay for that? You know, five million dollars is piss in the wind to him. What did, what did he what did he pay? I'd be I'd be very curious to know what he paid. That's kind of interesting. Um, and the other part would be, listen, it's the UFC's property; they can do with it what they want. Let's be one hundred percent clear about that. I don't think it's a big deal if there's no fans and there's no media as more or less a one-off. 
What I would not want to see is this as a repeated thing. Over time, by law, the commission, well, back up a step. The commission has to be there no matter what, right? That's the law. Over time, you know, MMA media's power to check people in power has been significantly eroded over time, in part by their own doing, but not just that. What I would humbly submit to you is if this becomes routine where it's now common for the media to not be allowed because they're renting this out, you know, once a month or something like that. And again, I'm, I'm very much hypothesizing here. Uh, that would send to me a more chilling message. One time, I really don't think is a big deal at all, um, especially if it's related to business-to-business -business interaction, right? B2B work. But just remember, people in power don't want to answer to people like you or me. They don't want you. They don't want you knowing their business. They don't want you knowing anything about them other than what they tell you. And people in MMA are like, oh, this is great. Fucking, he's rich and powerful. Come on in. He'll, he'll make MMA better. You think that's what he's trying to do? Or is he trying to make meta better? Right? And if it helps MMA, great. If it doesn't, that's great too. You're like, like that. understand that's what that's about and what he's about. So lots of questions. Uh, let's do one more of these and then we'll go to the paid ones such that they exist. Let's do a good one here. Oh, Othello was asking me about this today. Luke, have you seen the Dahmer documentary? It was truly shocked by the story as it happened before I was born. Motherfucker, I remember that being on the news. I was young. I was in elementary school, so I wasn't that old. But I remember that shit. And I was like, we, were, we used to be terrified of the stories they told. And would like to know how it was perceived by the American public at the time. He was perceived as like Satan incarnate. Satan incarnate. Were people only shocked by the gruesomeness of the crime? That was part of it. Or were issues related to racism and police incompetence also talked about? Police incompetence, maybe, but that was not a big part of the show. The, the biggest part of Dahmer, as I can remember him, and again, my recollection is somewhat impeded by the fact that, you know, I was a kid. But I remember the gruesomeness of it the savagery of it the almost near precision of it and then the mental illness component as well the big stories were like serial killers people were really dude i remember like the satanic panic and shit like that in the 80s where everyone thought everyone was like running towards satan and worshiping his ass and shit like that i, I remember all this and it seems oh that was so long ago people would never do that now yes just yes they will they absolutely will it's very foolish very foolish to think that people in history who did outrageous things did it because they were dumb. The human, the human condition for stupidity is enduring, super enduring may take on different forms or look different ways, but it's, there's a through line all the way. But the, the, the main thing such as we absorbed it through elementary school was the gruesomeness of it. The, the focus on serial killers as a public threat, and, um, you know, how this guy had heads in his freezer and shit like that. You know, it wasn't so much about police incompetence that I can remember. And it certainly was not about, um, I don't think race was discussed. Again, I can only tell you the way in which I received it at the time. I did not pick up on, this was not like Rodney King obviously had a lot of racial elements built onto it. OJ Simpson. I remember, I remember I was at my dad's house. Not far from here. My parents were divorced. 
I remember I was in the, uh, my dad used to live right over by Union Station, right behind the Thurgood Marshall Justice Building, which by the way, didn't even exist at the time, I don't believe. Um, Union Station did, but not the Thurgood Marshall Justice Building. And uh, we lived over on like D or E, um, just to the uh, west of the Capitol, or excuse me, the west of Union Station. And uh, I remember the chase, I remember the, 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 the LAPD doing the press conference once they got him, all that shit. Uh, and there was racial discussion there in every single dynamic way you could think of. I don't remember it being a big part of the public consciousness at that time, which isn't to say it didn't happen. I don't really remember it that way. All right. Um, if you got paid questions or remarks, great. If not, don't worry about it. I, I'm owed nothing from you. Uh, I appreciate your patronage just the same. If you got them, let's take a look at them now. All right. Someone got this in there. I don't know what his name is, but thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. All right. From Rain Entertainment, if Eddie Alvarez comes back to the UFC, how does he match up in the top 15 lightweight and welterweight? I think it would go poorly, quite candidly. Um, it's a good question. I still think he can win against good fighters, but he was struggling in one against... I want to be very clear, very clear about this. I'm not saying they're bad fighters. They're good fighters, but they're not great fighters, the ones he was struggling against. And how old is Eddie Alvarez? Let's see how old Eddie is. I think he's like 38, 39. 38. And he'll be 39 in January. Dude, at 155, that is a rough place to be. So let's look at the rankings for... Blow this up here. And I appreciate your question, Rain Entertainment. Let's go to this. Um, There's just more crypto shit. You buy crypto at your own fucking expense at this point, fellas. All right, so let's blow this up if we can here a little bit. Let's go. So, would you favor him against Tony Ferguson? Maybe. Right, I know. I know. You know what? You can't see it. So let's do this. Would you favor him against Tony Ferguson? Maybe. Dan Hooker? Maybe. Jalen Turner? Maybe. Demir Ismagulov? I would not favor him against Conor McGregor. Hard to say where Conor is, but I probably wouldn't. Armin Saryukian? Nope. Mateus Gamrot, nope. RDA is in a different stage. I would still favor RDA. Fazeev, no. Dariush, no. Chandler, still no. I think Chandler has is has gotten better through the UFC. Islam, no. Justin, no. Um, not this version of him. Not Dustin. Dustin already proved that. And then Charles Oliveira, absolutely not. Yeah, no. I don't think it would go. I don't think it would go super well. You know, I hope he gets some big fights. I honestly hope he fights Nate Diaz on the outside and makes a shitload of money. God, God knows that he has sacrificed so much for all of our entertainment. He has had tremendous wins. He's had a tremendous career. But, like, where do I think he's at now? I think he's at the very tail end of everything. Why do you think John Jones has not fought yet? One, he doesn't need the money, right? Doesn't need the money. A lot of these guys take fights because they need money. He doesn't. And I think, two, um, you know, he's got a lot of drama in his personal life, right? I mean, I don't even know half the details, but just on what he revealed publicly about his significant other leaving him. They've got kids. Dude, that's a brutal, awful process. You know, dude, divorce is fucking brutal. Brutal. Let me tell you, I can understand how that can, like, weigh on a person. And you might say, oh, John deserves it and whatever. I, you know, I, I can't adjudicate their relationship. I have no idea. But whatever you think of John, like, what does it do to a person? Right. It does bad shit. Uh, and also, like, there's the more common explanation that he's trying to get his body ready for um, 
a heavyweight campaign in the right way, and he wants to take his time. Fair enough. Uh, who do you favor in Demir Ismagulov versus Armin? I will tell you, I really hope Armin wins because I like Armin a lot. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Demir Ismagulov is a better boxer by a million miles. He's got really good takedown defense. I do think Armin learned some important lessons against Mateusz Gamrot and is a better wrestler than Demir, but that's a tough fight, dude. That's a real tough fight. And they might mess with his development, by the way. We'll see. Uh, let's see. Islam talks crap about every fighter and is dismissive of them, but when Chandler does the same thing to him, he can't take it. What gives? Man, I got to tell you, I don't pay attention to any of that shit. It's so irrelevant to me. You can't tell what part of it is fight promotion, what part of it is real. And if it is real, you're like, how the fuck could you possibly think this way? You know, not just in this scenario, in a million scenarios. This shit to me is so irrelevant. This part of the fight game about this guy, can't, he said this, but then the other person responded. I don't give a shit. Don't care. It's it's It all means nothing in the end. It doesn't mean anything. And as a, I would submit to you, largely, not entirely, not entirely, largely a waste of time. The drama of the fighters interacting with one another, two, two guys who have an insane profession saying insane shit to each other, Trying to parse that for value at, uh, can can yield some positive results, but you're going to deal, you know, you're going to wade through a lot of nonsense. How many pay-per-view buys will the PFL do? Not many. Not many. That is not a pay-per-view ready card. It's a fine card. Shane Burgos is on it against Marlon Marais, which seems like a terrible fight for Marlon, but whatever. I'm sure he's going to get paid relatively nicely. Shane Burgos took a good contract. Good for him. I hope he gets paid out the wazoo. Kayla's on it. I like Kayla. Thinks she's a great fighter. There's nothing wrong with the card, but like, what about that is going to get people to pay anything? Like, just in terms of attention dollars, how much are you willing to spend? <laughs> right? You have you have a hundred like attention dollars each day. You can give some to your family, some to work, some to your hobbies, some to TV, whatever. You only have so much. Just the, just the opportunity cost that they're up against in terms of like, I got to spend my day watching PFL, you know, is already a big ask. Now you want to ask a financial cost on top of it? Dude, that, that thing is going to tank. and It's going to tank in the most spectacular ways. It's going to do very poorly. Very poorly. I don't say this with glee. You're like, oh, you work for Showtime when you work with Bellator? Dude, I have, you know, <laughs> like when Scott Coker gives big announcements, he doesn't come on MK. You know what I mean? It's we have a Showtime relationship. Like, you know, he goes other places. I don't, I, I don't know how he feels about us, but I don't, I don't think that we're his favorite necessarily. Like, and nor I'm okay with that. Like, we we say what we say, and the chips fall where they do. And he doesn't have any, he doesn't owe us anything. You know, I want to be very clear about that as well. Nobody, no promoter does. But I'm just trying to make it clear that just because I have a Showtime relationship, oh, I might be banging on them. I I don't know what Bellator could do to put on pay per view either. You know, they, they don't have anything that could make money on pay-per-view in any kind of reasonable way. I don't suspect not at this time. Um, so it's not just the PFL. Like with one, what would one put on that would make you pay for it? I mean, I have an Amazon subscription, so I guess that kind of sticks. But like, mm -mm, nothing. Same from Rain. Which fight is getting made first? Spence Crawford or Jones and Ganu? Spence Crawford. Spence Crawford is like almost over the finish line, as I understand it. Um, there's, there is one big issue they haven't quite figured out that I'm told, but it's nothing to do with, um, well, I can't say much, can I? 
But Spence is good. Crawford's good. It's all the other big people trying to work out stuff. Spence Crawford will get made first. All right, from Spiro, I feel like much of modern MMA fandom is people projecting their unique personal issues and grievances through backing certain fighters for reasons fairly irrelevant to their performances and technical assets in competition. Yeah, you mean fandom? That's what fandom is. Like, oh, I, you know, I've been a Chicago Cubs fan. I'm Chicago born and bred. I've lived in Chicago all my life. You're going to paste that on top of a team that, yeah, they play there and this, they are part of the community as well. I, I, I don't, it's, it's not irrelevant. But, you know, these are mercenaries getting paid a check to play. And the minute they get traded, they're off to the next community to be part of it as well. So, like, I think a lot of that is just regular old sports fandom. In this particular case, it gets pasted onto another person. So it feels a little weird. But I don't I don't know how that would be unique from sports fandom more generally. People projecting their unique personal issues and grievances through backing certain fighters. Yeah. Uh, you know, I like this guy because he plays for us. But it also happens that, like, hey, Colby's got, you know, conservative right-wing views on a certain kind of them. Someone could be like, I like that kind of thing, so I'm going to cheer for him. That's 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 fandom. That's sports fandom. Conversely, someone's uh, – Kevin Lee spoke for Birdie. I, you know, I, I'm going to cheer for him because I like Birdie. Whatever. You know, all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, he's fr- he, he likes uh, the same band that I like. I'm going to, you know. I, I was also had a drunk mother. Okay, whatever it ends up being, we'll just put all those things together for whatever they want. People will find any reason to do it. Whatever's happening in their life is what's most accessible and ready and important to them. Of course, they're going to project that. You know, that's just sports fandom. Unless I'm misunderstanding your question in some kind of way. Is Muay Thai and Jits a good combo for MMA? It covers all three aspects. It does not cover all three aspects. Kickboxing, wrestling, and the clinch. Yeah, wrestling and the clinch. Buddy, that's that's it's a different kind of wrestling in the clinch. It's not wrestling, wrestling in the clinch. Or should you start off with boxing and jits instead? How do you see Chamaya versus... Yeah, no. Mm-mm. I would say, If I had to pick a combo, I'd pick... Uh, I'd pick, like, submission wrestling and boxing. Um, you could go kickboxing if you wanted to. I'm just telling you what I would pick. So I would have like a wrestling style where submissions are the appropriate end goal, but that what wrestling from the feet matters, almost like a catch wrestling style. And then uh, and then boxing, I think that has the best way uh, to teach someone to develop distance management and um, angles and defense. It seems to have a much greater premium on those things than the other striking arts, from what I can tell. <laughs> Thanks, Jay Garcia. Jota Garcia. I'll leave that up there. By the end of 2022, Nurmagomedov and Makachev may be Bellator and UFC lightweight champions. If so, which org would have the best lightweight in the world and why? Would still say Makachev is better. But dude, Usman Nurmagomedov is a fucking beast. Um, I know some people kind of bag on his record. Fair enough. But they keep escalating it, and he keeps just running those fuckers over too. I think that, um, I think Patricky's in for a rough one. We'll see. From Columbia Valley Media, Bo Nickel detractors may not understand the levels in wrestling of which there are many. KC is great, never even a world medalist, let alone champ. Yoel, oh, I think Hamzat Chemayev. Yoel, 18 years from the Olympics to Whitaker. Yeah, yeah. And also, there's a difference between the freestyle of the international wrestling scene and then the folk style of American collegiate wrestling. They're not the same. They have some different positions, different ways of scoring. Um, 
there's I would actually say folk style is actually better for MMA for all of the mat wrestling in the way in which they do it um, is better. So yes. And when it comes to collegiate wrestling, Bo Nickel is about as good as it fucking gets. They don't come much better than that. That dude is an absolute fucking hammer. Uh, okay, from and from Nate. What's up, Luke? Do you believe the UFC kept Sam Alvey as long as they did because he now has the all-time losing streak and not BJ Penn? I doubt it. I doubt it. I think he was well-liked within the company. I think that um, he was valuable to match him up with other guys to kind of see where they're at. And, um, you know, he talked real nicely about them. I think that they liked that as well. You know, so they just gave him ample opportunity. From Pablo Perez. Que onda, Luquito? Uh, would MMA benefit from using the buyout clause in contracts that like football and soccer has? Price goes down per fight. I don't, a lot of these don't have buyout clauses. Like, you know, for example, the famous one, the famous one is... Floyd bought out his own contract from top rank for like less than a million bucks, you know, and look at him now. But I don't think that these UFC, I've seen UFC contracts. I don't think I've ever seen a provision for a buyout clause. That doesn't mean they couldn't come and work out some kind of trade like they did with Askren and like where you're trading assets in that way. But um, I don't, there might be some contracts that have buyout clauses, but even then, like what did Barcelona put on like, Neymar's, I mean, or or Messi's, it was like a billion or or whatever, whatever it was, some like astronomical fucking stupid number, you know. Um, they can just do that at the, to to prevent it. Uh, from Tricks Three Six, really enjoyed the RSD with Chael. Wasn't expecting him as a guest. Have you two ever discussed the back and forth you had years ago? Yeah, I've addressed this a few times. Um, I won't ask to be unblocked on Instagram. I promise. We 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 had a phone conversation. He called me once when I was on the air. And I texted him, I'm like, I'm on the air, can I call you back? And I called him back, we worked it out. We talked about what would happen. Um, you know, I'm not going to share the contents of that conversation, but we came to an understanding. I, Dude, I've got no issue with you. I'm an adult, you know? I'm an imperfect one. Um, I will get lots of things wrong, but I'm a human adult. If I can talk to another human adult in a reasonable way and we're able to work out our differences, why wouldn't you? Seems relatively obvious. He wanted to work out the differences. I accepted the call. He didn't yell at me. I didn't yell at him. We talked about what happened and where we're going to go from here. And it's been fine ever since. Like, Chael's been cool. I, if you'd ask him, I, I feel like he'd say I've been cool to him. That's it. We worked it out. Cool, right? So I, that's how I feel. Like, you don't need... And also, dude, I you know, as somebody who carried a lot of grievances for a long time, and I still got a few I hang on to, but, dude, they'll eat you alive. You just don't realize how taxing it is to hate someone it's taxing it will wear your ass down dude it is so difficult you can do it for a long time but it's you're giving so much of your mental energy to something else um i can't do it anymore i just I, if I, I you know if if i can at all avoid it if i can at all avoid it i would but you know some some situations are irresolvable and that's life too but you'd be surprised. Many, many are resolvable. I don't know what the fuck that means. Um, do you see Cyril gone becoming champ? I already did. I thought he was going to beat Francis, and he didn't. But I, I think it will be inevitable. He'll wear the belt. Um, I do. Uh, someone asked Luke, "How great was a prime BJ Penn, dude? That was the best fighter I'd ever seen when he was at his best. 
Like at that moment in time, I'm like, there ain't a fucker alive near his weight that's going to beat him. And how does he fare in the modern lightweight division? Uh, and the modern lightweight division, still pretty good. Um, like if you're talking about prime BJ Penn against the current crop, I still think pretty good. He he had for his era the best takedown defense I'd ever seen. He had a phenomenal jab. He had a rock chin. And, you know, first American to win the world championships at the black belt like level. And as I, I've said this a million times, when he was with the, with, with the Marinovich brothers, dude, they had him looking fucking shredded and on point and ready to go. When that BJ Penn existed, he was untouchable. Untouchable. You cannot imagine. His record is so deceiving. But there was a period there where he was just an apex predator. And that's just what it was. And also, it was a weird feature. Like, I remember after the Fitch fight, Right where he came out hot and then kind of faded down the stretch. I remember after the fight and also the Nick Diaz fight where he looked at BJ's face and I remember how marked up it was when he was early into the midpoint, like when he chucked out Takanori Gomi at Rumble on the Rock, for example. That was a big fucking deal when he did that, you know. Um, he could they couldn't put a mark on him. Like he would fight guys like Machida or Rodrigo Gracie or Henzo or whatever. And they couldn't put a mark on him. He's fighting much bigger men, and his face would never get marked up. I remember the first time his face got marked up, I was like, that's new. That's new. So his skin didn't cut. He couldn't be hurt from a punch. He had, like, impenetrable takedown defense, world championship-level jiu-jitsu, and he was heavy-handed and had good boxing. Like, dude, he was he was, he was, was a force. He was a force. He's become a, a caricature of himself or of something recently. I find what he's been up to very distressing. but. Um, but what he was in his prime, unbelievable from Bryce Jones. Luke, I just saw Bomba Estadio. Huh? Funny. You mentioned that last weekend and thought they were awesome. Since you are a, my resident <laughs> experto de musica, Colombiana, Colombiano. Um, I thought I would, I, well, I guess I'm not Colombian either. I, I thought I would ask some of your favorite Colombian musicians. So you guys know who Bomba Estadio is. Um, they had, um, they, they have the Ford commercial. Uh, how's it go? Soy Joe. You've heard the hit, I assure you. And they've got some other ones like Fuego is one of my favorites. It's an amazing song. Um, I saw them at, if you're from the DC area, I saw them at the Black Cat. My wife introduced me to them years ago. I actually saw Bomba Estereo at uh, now the now defunct Rock and Roll Hotel. Back when they, and they were, I remember this, they were like an hour and a half late for their performance and they only performed for 45 minutes and they got murdered on social media for it. But, um, but, uh, they're amazing. I guess the ones I like from Colombia, um, you know, you're sort of obligated to like Fonseca, you're sort of obligated to like Carlos Vives, Jorge Celadon, um, you know, one of the sort of favored sons of colombian music would be uh is it dio diametis i think that's how you say his name um oje bonita what's that name how's that song go oje bonita um que estas mirando something like that i can't remember the, the words exactly but he's sort of a famous guy in what's called vaginato they have a whole style of music which is like this like almost like sad love party music it's really weird um, but it's a big thing and from there's a place where it's from called Vaje du Par where that whole style of music originated. I'm trying to think of like um you know uh Juan S is okay. He's okay. 
Shakira's okay. Um, if, if I'm being candid with you, actually, I was t- you know who I was telling this to? You'll laugh at this. I was talking to Brian Campbell about this. He was asking for like, you know, Latin songs that he could ride to on the Peloton. So he was asking about like, uh, like some some reggaeton, and I was like, dude, you got to get into Spanish rock. Like, I didn't know anything about it. I'm not an expert on it. F- far from it. But if you've never looked into it, like if you're a, like I was, like just some American who just thought rock and roll was whatever we did in the United States and Europe, man, you're missing out. You're missing out, dude. The three biggest countries that I can tell that contributed to um, Spanish rock would be Spain, Mexico, and Argentina. And so from Argentina, and this is the biggest of all of them, Soda Stereo. They have a song called Musica Ligera, light music, um, which is just, I mean, but they've got so much like Tratame Suavamente and um, La Ciudad de Furia. They've got all kinds of stuff. Uh, But they are like the U2 of Latin rock, but they're Argentinian. You're asking about Colombian. They're Argentinian. On the Mexican side, you've got um, Caifanes is a huge, huge band. If you're into like the lighter side of stuff, Mana. Uh, Mana has something. Like, um, Oye Mi Amor is like one of my favorite songs. And then in Spain, you've got like Duncan Du, who's like a big guy. Um, what, oh, here's another great one. Heroes del Silencio. Um there's another huge, huge. I mean, we're talking about guys that have bands that have sold millions upon millions and millions of records. How many has Soda Stereo sold? Just for my own, um, own edification. I know Mana has sold like fifty million, something, some fucking incre- incredible amount. Uh, and the head of Soda Stereo was this guy named Gustavo Sorati who ended up having like an aneurysm and was in a coma for a long time. He eventually succumbed to it recently, actually. He died, I th- I want to say, like not not too long ago. Um, my wife has a picture with him, so he's not like that old. I'm trying to see exactly how, how many albums they sold. I don't have it here in front of me. I guarantee you it's close to like 100 million albums. Like they, it's it's just one of the biggest bands there are. And I couldn't even tell you about the Brazilian side of things, which is still Latin America. Anyway, the answer is if you're looking to get good like into Spanish rock, there's so much of it. Spain, Mexico, and Argentina have the very best of them. The very best of them. Uh, let's see. Hamzat may have gas tank issues against Colby and Usman based on his last two fights, and that's a scary proposition of both their cardio kings. It remains to me the biggest question I have about Hamzat. Of all the questions that I have, that would be number one. All right. Um, do you think Bellator is missing the mark? They should make a flyweight division and an atomweight women's division and do a tournament to crown the champ. Would that meaningfully move the needle, a women's atomweight division? I don't know that it would. The flyweight one is more interesting to me. Um, but I really don't think that's what's challenging Bellator. To me, it's that the UFC has 80 to 85% of the world's premier talent. That's really what the challenge is. So... Uh, let's see. Were you a fan of the American rapper Coolio? Dude. Yes, of course. Sadly, he passed away yesterday. We found out Gangsta's Paradise on the movie Dangerous Minds. Did you watch that story, Michelle Pfeiffer? Let me explain something to you. So uh, his cover of Fantastic Voyage was 94. And I believe, if my math is right, I believe Gangsta's Paradise came out in 95. So I was a freshman in high school when that all came out. When Gangsta's Paradise came out, 
And I know that, you know, we're in 93 and 94 is when the era of hardcore, like boom bap stuff came out of New York. But Coolio was the biggest star on the planet at that time. Like, go. I was actually doing this the other day. Go. Let me pull it up. Because what's the point of having this shit if, uh, you know, I can't show it to you? Look at this for just a second. Let me pull this up. This is the Wikipedia for Gangsta's Paradise, its own entry. Look at all the places it was number one <laughs> across the world. Like Canadian top singles, I don't know what happened there, but in Belgium, in Australia, in Austria, in Denmark, El Salvador, all of Europe, in their Hot 100, Finland, France, Germany, Iceland, Ireland, Italy, Netherlands, in two different ways, New Zealand, Norway, Scotland, Spain only hit 20, all right, whatever. Sweden, UK singles, UK hip-hop, R&B, US Billboard Hot 100, US uh, Hot R&B hip-hop songs. Got two, and there was two there, and then in Zimbabwe, even in Zimbabwe, it was fucking number one. I mean, you gotta be shitting me, man. You gotta be shitting me. Dude, he, that song made him a fucking international star. He was the guy at that moment in time. Everybody loved Coolio. And, you know, Fantastic Voyage, his cover, it was a fun song. Like, yeah, it's impossible to hate Coolio. I don't, I don't know what kind of person he was. And I know he did a bunch of reality television. And maybe he came across great on those. Maybe he didn't. But, boy, I got to tell you, Coolio at that time was king, king of the world. All right, we got one from Cody James. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. We go now to Raphael uh, LaDuc. If Dana retires anytime soon, what would be his overall legacy and would it be positive or negative? It would be largely positive. I think that there is no dude, anybody's anybody's record is going to be mixed, right? So there's definitely going to be some negatives, but um, I think it would be a very triumphant in large part uh, resume based on when he took over and what happened under his leadership. Now, of course, it wasn't his leadership alone. The Fertitas played a big part. The matchmakers played a big part. Obviously, getting bought out played a big part. And so there's some questions about to what extent is he now a figurehead relative to when he used to be. But it would be largely one of, of success. However, part of that was being extremely anti-competitive, about locking fighters into terrible contracts, about being adversarial with the media at all times. And, not, and I know some folks like that, but I mean in ways that would most rational people would say is not um, good or in, in the company's interest. And, you know, and so on and so on. And, you know, foul mouth, that, but that could be a good and a bad. So that's kind of a polarizing thing. But uh, in general, I think it would be largely triumphant. But I think there were the, the, the success that he used to drive the brand forward would be the greatest parts about it. But that same success also came, I think, you know, you can't say like utterly at the expense of the fighters. They have benefited in many ways as well but that they consolidated the industry around themselves. MMA is not nearly as promotionally, it's promotionally diverse, but it's not as promotionally equal. There's not as much parody among the promotions as there used to be. That's in large part because of the consolidation that they helped usher in to, to be the brand leaders, which I don't know is necessarily as good for the industry as it could have been, um, even though it was great for them. And I think it had, uh, there's a lot of it that ultimately did harm the fighters. Um, that, I think, would be the sort of biggest parts about it. Why are there so few African-American women in MMA? They have not been effectively recruited. Like, um, most of the fans are white dudes. It's a white dude sport. 
You can like that fact. You can hate that fact. You can see good things into that. You can see bad things into that. That is up to you. But if you've got mostly white dudes enjoying something, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of signals to black women to either go train or participate or become fans. Of course, there are many who are, to be clear. We don't want to exclude them. But you're asking why aren't there more? Um, I don't think that we put out a lot of stuff that they are recruited to watch. Pretty simple, right? Would you meet fans for coffee in D.C.? Yeah, I've thought about doing it. I've just never really arranged it. But sure, I'd be in favor. I'd be up for it. Dude, just support the Ravens. <laughs> it is a great organization. I'm not watching the Commanders this year. I'm, I know what the record is, but I'm not. They're, until Dan Snyder, once he goes, I'm back in. We'll win or lose after that. But as long as he's there, I'm not. And I do that not because I think, oh, that'll show him. It's not going to show him shit. He doesn't care about me. But um, I don't want to be supportive of anything he's attached to. Luke was hoping you could enlighten us on some, what uh, on some, or enlighten us some, excuse me, on what happened with Vox. I'm aware of it, but not the details. You don't shy away from the resentment, but I wonder what exactly happened and how. I know, I need to stop talking about this shit. It doesn't do me any good. It's not, you know, I, I do carry an enormous amount of resentment towards them, which you guys know, but, and I, God, I would love to air them out. I've been saying for years, I can't wait to air them out. And then the older I get, the more I'm like, who fucking cares? You know, I don't imagine people out there to care. Listen, as a basic sort of overview, I'm not going to get into any details. I'm not the first person and I'm definitely not the last person that's going to be fucked over by corporate America. You know, so who gives a shit? I, I realize it'd be cool to learn some of the details. They didn't see me. Uh, it didn't work out between us. It didn't work out between us is the best I can say. And maybe at some point when I'm down the line and I no longer really give a shit at all, I'll be happy to say something. But I think by that point, none of you will care either. And maybe at that point, that's just the way that it should go. Um, I want to be clear. I don't have any of these feelings towards Sirius XM who were nothing but supportive of me in every way the entire way through. I feel very good about that. And not to say I didn't have differences with them at times, but, you know, we they're professional and we handle them. I don't feel this way about CBS Sports. I don't feel this way about Showtime. Um, it's just with Vox, but I can't, I can't keep doing this. I shouldn't have even brought it up last week. I, I just got to move on from it. I got to move on from it because it's just silly to bring up. Just know that until you see me say publicly otherwise, I, I detest them and the leadership there. And that will probably be that way the rest of my life. But because I don't think that they take any of my complaints seriously, even though I'm very much in the in the <laughs> utterly impeachably in the right. Uh, but I, it's it's just time to stop talking about it. Uh, that's all I'll say. That's it. I've said, I, even that was too much. Uh, almost done with these. Do you think having a solid boxing base before kickboxing is a more intelligent approach to having a more refined, evolved striking base? It would depend on person to person, but I would just say that I feel like, at least for MMA, um, I feel like the ones... Well, that's not quite true either. The long-term potential for striking growth to me seems to be the ones who have better boxing base. That is not entirely true. 
fact, is there's a lot of exceptions to that, but I'm seeing that trend a little bit. Uh, will you ever break down kickboxing like in one? Sure, sure. Oh, so Othello came with me today. You can't see it. It's right here now. Finally, we brought the TV back from the studio, the failed studio experiment, which, you know, is another sort of what the fuck moment in my life. But um, we brought it back. Finally, it's back in my office. I would expect some breakdowns very soon. Uh, let's see. I was recently gifted lifting shoes. What to do? Use them. Uh, the Washington Commander seats were ripped. Sorry. I don't know what that means, but okay. Uh, with respect to Chael, dude, you can disagree with me, but that man is a charlatan. <laughs> this person writes. And snake oil salesman pushing company agendas at the expense of the fighters. I have some serious disagreements with some of his views. I don't think he says them in bad faith. I will say that. I don't think he says those in bad faith. And last but not least from, I don't know if it's Rodolfo Romero, Rodolfo Romero or Rodolfo. Luquito, saludos. Saludos, excuse me. Desde Honduras. You once called Tuki nervioso. So once you get that down, you'll be granted the OK rank in Spanish. <laughs> For a washed up gringo, mind you. Yes, of course. A la Madrid y vamos Real España de San Pedro Sula. All right, don't know what that means, but there you have it. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. One last time, thumbs up on this. Subscribe. Yes, the television is back. I know I did that fucking jacked up version of this, being like, hey, everyone, look at this shit. And then you couldn't see anything, and it was a fucking mess. Yeah, I know. I know. It was a disaster. What can you do? Uh, the TV is back. The TV is back. So... Time to get back on the horse, is it not? Yes, it is. Appreciate y'all watching. Love you. Appreciate you. This will be up on podcast before I go to sleep. And uh, yeah, that's it for me. So thank you guys so much for watching. Until next time, stay frosty.